Long days and pleasant nights to you guys. This week's guest is Lynette Palladino. She is a stand-up comedian here in New York. We have an excellent conversation about the armed services and loss and pregnancy and motherhood. So it's kind of like all of life wrapped into like an hour. And she's wonderful and fantastic and very warm and kind, and I was very happy to have her on. Side note, all of our programs here at Wayward Wordsmiths are completely listener-funded, so if you have an interest in becoming a Patreon donor, go to patreon.com and look up Wayward Wordsmiths Co. Word as in word, not word as in wired. My wired. Uh, my word, my word. Um, also, if you like the show, um, rate and write a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Potable. We're on all of those now. Um, please go to those apps or whatever apps you're using and rate us there and write a review. Also, tell your friends. We don't pay for any advertising, and that's because we're very poor. Um, uh, hopefully, someday we will be able to pay for advertising. And until that point, word of mouth is the only way we get our stuff spread around the internet and so forth. So if you like the show, tell someone and have them listen to it. Grab their phone, go to their app, hit subscribe, and, you know, they may well ignore it, but you've done the best you can. And that's all I ask you to do, because that's all I ask of myself every day. Sometimes it's very hard. But enough of me blathering. Please enjoy the interview. Or if you don't, I hope you do next time. I think therefore I am a legend. It's 24 7, 365. Parents advise discretion with thoughts like mine. Empires fall. You should know that these walls only up for protection. World on guard, got them all on the edge. Falls at eight feet, barely balance the tension. Raising the heat, I could leap any second. Fall to the street and be home by 11. Do an interview with KP on the session and laugh when he asks if it's passion. And a lot of the um, stand up stuff came from like wanting to find something to say and if you mm-hmm. don't have something to say why would you go up on stage other than like I mean unless the goal is to just entertain and there is value in that but it helps if there's something a little extra it's funny that you should uh, mention that like that the value of having something to say because I um, I used to run this group out of my apartment called the writer's room and I would pair veteran comedians with younger comedians mm-hmm. and sometimes the workshops would be um, female focused like do you feel responsibility as a female to talk about certain topics or bring awareness to certain topics Mm -hmm. through your humor and we did the same thing with um, uh, persons of color evening Mm -hmm. Uh, we did with Nico White he he mentored that session sure Um, and it, it was interesting in that neither of the veteran comics really felt like, say, a responsibility socially, mm. but it certainly crafted some of their humor and their jokes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I think in general, you'll find that most comedians are more aware of social issues than regular lay folk. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I definitely can tell that. Um yeah, and I think that's kind of the nature of like the the nature of the gig is that like 
it, it's surrounded by saying something that's true. And so what's true is what's happening in the world. And like, whether or not you're making jokes at the expense of those people or whatever, but like you have to, it has, there has to be some sort of input. And specifically, the, I think that's why most artists are some sort of minority in general. Like they feel more, or at least they feel marginalized. Oh, okay, sure. You know, I don't know if that's like I guess if you look at like film actors, you wouldn't believe that most of them are minorities or whatever. But they probably always felt outcast and weird. Yeah, well, yeah. it's kind of like that, um, like a disproportionate number of successful performers come from very difficult upbringings. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, like the, and the most common, like uh, in James Lipton has said, in the most common theme throughout all the Inside the Actor Studios is some sort of troubled childhood and like specifically if a parent died early on. And so mm -hmm. there, there seems to be a need to fill that void, which is interesting. Yeah, I, I honestly, like I think about it, I'm like, I feel like there's only one comic like, John Mulaney seems to have had a pretty standard <laughs> upbringing. Like, yeah. again, I, I certainly don't know anything about his childhood, but just from his comedy and the way he talks about Charles and Ellen Mulaney. Yeah. Uh, sure. You know, two lawyers who went to college with Bill Clinton. It's yeah. Like, this sounds like you were doing fine. Yeah. <laughs> yep. There is also, like, this weird... I found, like, people who do come from, like, well-off families specifically, like, there's this weird void of once you have like you know the pyramid of needs once you have those top two those bottom two tiers met right away you kind of get in this weird existential like well what does life mean mm. and i think that's kind of where that anxiety comes from but yeah also i know he had some issues with like drug and alcohol abuse yeah so, like even if you very come early from, on yeah. yeah and he seems to have like nipped that in the bud and go well this is not a part of my personality that i choose to indulge anymore and I think that's very good. Um, but on that topic, like, uh, what kind of home did you come from? Where are you from? Where do you go? Where do you come from? Cotton Eye Joe. Uh, I grew up in Bergen County and New Jersey in Dumont, um, but I was born in Hoboken, where okay. uh, my mom had settled. Um, she came from Puerto Rico, uh, very much off the boat Puerto Rican. Like, she didn't come here until she was... 14 after her mother passed away mm. um and then i had i guess a, a, a relatively normal upbringing until about 10 mm. um when my parents split and then 11 my mom left and then it was just me and my dad and so i was my dad's only child mm -hmm. um my dad is an only child and my grandmother my dad's my paternal um, grandmother was an only child so it was just the three of us wow <laughs> it was it was very interesting it's like I often joke that you know when you there's only two other people in your family you don't get into a lot of fights like yeah. I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't a dramatic teenager at all sure I mean I wouldn't say so maybe my father would have uh, disagreed <laughs> with me but like it's like if you argued with him then you had nobody to talk to <laughs> it's like that's fair yeah, yeah um but I did, I do remember spending a lot of time at school kind of to escape the loneliness of, because mm -hmm. like there's only so much time you can spend with your dad. Like, and our, our quality time probably would have shocked a lot of other parents. Like the Sopranos came out when I was a freshman in high school. That was bonding time for us. <laughs> it was like Sunday night, we're gonna watch the Sopranos together. That's so good, that's wonderful. Yeah. Weird, but also that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I feel like most 
fathers wouldn't watch like a show about gangsters <laughs> that frequently takes place at a titty bar with their 14 year old daughter <laughs> huh no i suppose not uh, yeah did that like you were talking like you have a uh, with the the comics you feel do you feel like you have to talk about being um puerto rican at all in your set or like does that affect you or um i mostly only talk about being puerto rican um from the context of i look so ethnically ambiguous like mm-hmm. most people never guess that off the bat uh, uh-huh. I, I kind of get everything. Sure. And it's almost like whatever demographic I is most concentrated will claim me. Like if I'm <laughs> hanging out with my Greek friends, they like their family just assumes I am also Greek. Like huh. that's that's why I'm there because I'm Greek. Um, Interesting. Or you know, I certainly get a lot of Middle Eastern. Mm-hmm. I've gotten Indian before, mm-hmm. but no, I it really other than I've I tried some immigrant stuff early on. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> there were a lot of things that my mom did differently that other mothers <laughs> certainly weren't doing. Like K to five for me was in a Catholic school, mm-hmm. um, in unlike in a, a neighboring town that was very wealthy. Like my family was very much lower middle class, mm-hmm. and then it, so it was like it was them. Um, the only other Puerto Rican family, which was only half Puerto Rican, um, founded Goya. Yeah, like the food company, Goya. That's some tough competition. And like her mom barely spoke Spanish and it was complicated. And my mom mom used to get so pissed. Yeah? Yeah, it was just like... like And I remember whenever a Filipino kid would come to school, like a new student... Mm-hmm. I'd ask them if they were Puerto Rican because they were the only other tan kids in <laughs> class and they like didn't even speak English. So I was like, okay, I guess not. <laughs> that is fair. Okay. Because there seems, at least from an outside looking in, I don't know if this is actually true, there seems to be a very large emphasis on heritage with um, people, every, like actually just every immigrant, like specifically like first or second generation. So does... Like, did your mom get upset because those people weren't honoring that? Was there a lot of pressure of that on you growing up, do you think? Um, I think my mom had a pretty difficult, uh, teen- her teenage years were difficult because mm-hmm. she came to New York, um, to Queens, and they, you know, this was way before any sort of, like, ESL programs in school existed. So she was really just that immigrant kid that mm-hmm. didn't speak English yet. Um, I think she might have gotten bullied a lot. So that has always kind of been a chip on her shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, of course, she learned English. Um, and she doesn't really have much of an accent. She says certain words, like, very funny. <laughs> I'm like, what? It does, and it's illogical. Like, she says shart instead of chart. Which is hilarious. Yes, that is very good. <laughs> she has no problem saying chicken. I'm like, they're spelled the same. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, well, it's okay. I was like, all right, you know what? Whatever. And like, bees and bees. Yeah. Are completely the same. Like, yeah, there's no distinction for her yeah. between bees and bees. Just like whatever. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't. Like, there was no push when we were kids to learn Spanish. Um, you know, we whatever Spanish we did pick up, we just kind of picked up from around family. But we did go there every year. Yeah? Like, I went to Puerto Rico every year growing up. Mm-hmm. I haven't been since, like, the year after I graduated college. But um, that, that was probably the most, I don't know, 
cultural she would get, <laughs> I guess, like okay. as far as exposure was concerned. All right. Um, where'd you go to college and for what? I went to Fordham. Um, okay. Right at Lincoln Center, actually, mm-hmm. not the Rose Hill campus in the Bronx. I went to Fordham. Um, I ended up becoming a religious studies major. Oh, really? Yes, which is at Fordham. The distinction between a theology student and a religious studies student was that theology students had a larger concentration in uh, Christianity, uh, whereas the religious studies students weren't pigeonholed that way. And it kind of happened by accident. So I was trying to major in German, German language, but they weren't going to offer enough classes for me to graduate on time. Okay. (laughs) And I was majoring in German because I needed to graduate on time. (laughs) Like, that was it. Uh, I was, I did ROTC. Yeah, yeah, I know. I I joke. It's it's so funny if you if you're not really exposed to like that combination of German language and religious studies, yeah. you wouldn't know that that would have made like the perfect nun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but while also being an ROTC, you know yeah. that those are like diametrically opposed, like, polar opposites. I mean, uh-huh. I was an ROTC. Like, I just needed to graduate on time. I knew exactly what I was doing after college, which was joining the army. Mm-hmm. Um, and those those two really interested me. Okay. Um, I, I guess I had a, a little bit of a luxury there of actually studying something I enjoyed mm-hmm. that was completely like useless <laughs> in the future. I mean, some real, I I think as far as like being a human person, those two have helped me. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly in the military, having an understanding of Islam mm-hmm. has certainly helped, but. It's nothing I wouldn't have learned later on. Okay. Do you still speak a little German? I do. Ein bisschen? Ein bisschen, aber ich habe viel vergessen. <laughs> Very good. Wonderful. That's excellent. Um, I studied German for about three years in high school, so I can say, was hast du an Wochenende gemacht? And that is about it. Oh, yeah. what did I do this weekend? Mm-hmm. Um, Besides this. Besides this, yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh, I can't even remember. Any- oh, last night um, was the... Fordham Christmas concert. They do a ridiculous concert. It's so beautiful. Uh, It's called the Festival of Lessons and Carols. And it's at St. Paul's, um, which is its own separate parish, but just happens to be right across the street from the university. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a madhouse. Like, it's standing room only by 730. And this is a huge church. Like, it's like half the length of a city block. So, I mean, it just gets packed. And uh, the choir sings and the women's choir sings and then students from um, the Alvin Ailey program. Uh, so Fordham, lovely school that it is, offers a BFA, uh, BFA Bachelor of Fine Arts in Dance. So mm-hmm. they partner with the Alvin Ailey School. So our, mm-hmm. it was bizarre. I, I had a, my sophomore year, like one of my roommates was like a rocket. I was like, okay, wow. <laughs> I'm going to go to the range and shoot my M16. <laughs> Well, you're a freaking rocket. (laughs) That's wonderful. Uh, That's like a regular odd couple situation. Like, great. Uh, Between those two situations, you could, like, the the three of you at the beginning of your life moving into that, you could definitely just do a whole sitcom of your life. And it's... It would be tight. Yeah. That would be very good. My dad was, uh, like, the Italian Archie Bunker. (laughs) It was so awful. Oh, no. Like, I felt like a... I remember very much connecting to Harry Potter when I was 14 (laughs) as, as like, that kid in the basement. (laughs) Like, I just live under my dad. Mm -hmm. I was, and that's how it was. My dad had the top floor to himself. Oh, Um, wow. He he made it into, like, this really 
crazy bachelor pad. Like, my dad had a, a rare spinal disease, so he put a hot tub on, like, the second floor of our house. That is buck wild. Not like, I don't mean, like, a whirlpool. I mean, mm. like, a four-seater hot <laughs> tub. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow it was absurd um and then i had the ground floor so mm -hmm. yeah we we didn't have to share bathrooms or anything like that uh, but I, I might as well have had my own apartment at 14. <laughs> fair enough um when did you start doing stand-up uh after my dad passed away so oh. my dad passed Sorry in yeah in march 2014 and then um that summer I was just like he had had uh he was diagnosed with stage four melanoma and mm. when you're diagnosed that late it's really a death sentence like yeah. a lot of people think like oh my gosh pancreatic cancer or brain cancer no melanoma is very aggressive mm -hmm. um from diagnosis you get six to nine months with stage four melanoma wow. um so his his illness was all consuming it was just like 24 hours a day pop so like I would do you know I'd go to work and then I'd come home and make sure he was fat and doctor's appointments and all that stuff and um then afterwards you're just like what do I do with myself like yeah. you really there's no going back to the way things were like your whole perspective on life really changes like I used to work ridiculous hours at um my day job and like you know I'd work eight to seven and then I was like why mm -hmm. why am I doing this and so I stopped those hours and I decided I needed to do something creative again. So mm -hmm. while I was at Fordham, I had been president of the university choir for my last two years. Like I did the vagina monologues my senior year. Um, I'd always been on stage. Like I played French horn in the band. Mm -hmm. And you know, once you join the army, the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the creative things kind of stop. Yeah. It's like a new kind of creative. I have heard as much. <laughs> Yes. So I just uh, I decided to take a stand-up class, and that yeah. was kind of the beginning of the end. What? Well, that's good. Well, like it's good that you found an outlet. And did you your did your material all center around your father passing, or was it just an outlet? No. Because you need to do something creative. Yeah, I'm no Tig Notaro. I have <laughs> I have not found a way to make cancer funny yet, yeah. I, and not not for lack of effort. Um, uh -huh. It's just. Nothing I've written has really done as well as other bits I've written. Sure, yeah. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. Like, And that's perfectly okay to be like, this is my personal life. You guys don't get to hear about this. No, it's, it's, and it's not because I don't want to share mm -hmm. it. It's just I'm not clever enough. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. I think you're pretty clever. We'll see. Also, like... You're still funny. I still think you're funny. Oh, thank you don't you. need to write jokes about cancer, yeah. and that's okay. Um, but that that must have been very. So you're you're really like involved with his treatment and like seeing him. Like you were basically doing hospice. Yeah, actually, it was pretty crazy in that I had gone to work um, the day before, and I said, "Look, um, I'm gonna have to go on FMLA," and they're like, "When?" I'm like, "Monday." And wow. it was like a Wednesday, and my dad passed on a Thursday, um, oh, the wow. very next day. And so <laughs> I went to work that Thursday, and I had been up with him all night. Like, he had had a really bad night. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was getting phone calls at, like, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Like, you need to come home. Like, does he have a DNR? Um, do not resuscitate, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Until I raced home out of the city um, that evening. He had passed already. By the time I got home, he was probably already gone. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, it's rough. Sorry. Yeah. It was, 
it, it's weird how it happens because you know, that was the end of nine months of caring for him and then all of a sudden like he was just gone like yeah. I thought I kind of expected it to be a little bit more um I don't know uh building because mm -hmm. we had actually had a doctor's appointment the day before and I asked them to admit him and they said no mm. and I was like Okay. Well, like I can't fight with an oncologist. Yeah. And my dad's oncologists were wonderful. Like there's, yeah. he was treated by two: one in Inglewood, which was close to our home, and one at Sloan Kettering. And they're they're both wonderful. Okay. Did you feel any sort of relief that you didn't have to work as hard? And did you then feel guilty because you felt relief from doing that, or was it only grief and sadness? No. Yeah. I'm. So my grandmother, my dad's mom had passed mm -hmm. only like just barely two years before him. And my grandmother was one of those uh, women that she always had like one foot on a banana peel, one foot in the grave. <laughs> like she had survived so many things. <laughs> Sorry, that image is very good. Very funny. <laughs> Well, and, it, and if you knew my yeah. grandma, it would be even funnier because, yeah. like, she would do, like, you know, nutty grandma things. Like, yeah. she she lived in that house for 50 years, so she would, like, try doing things like going to the bathroom without turning the lights on at night. Well, like, one night she fell down the stairs and broke her leg in two places, and instead of calling, like, 911, she'd mm. call my dad at 2 in the morning. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I fell. It's like, the, why are you calling me? <laughs> <laughs> They'll let the ambulance call me. And then you get there, and it's like, it's not like a simple fracture. It's like a compound oh, fracture. Wow. There's like blood all over the place. And you're thinking, like, how did this 70 something year old woman <laughs> fucking, like, military low crawl her way over to the cell phone <laughs> and then just pass out? <laughs> it's like, it's like, it was. So, I mean, from that perspective, like, it had always been, like, uh, a transition of care. Mm -hmm. Like, we had spent so much time taking care of my grandmother and making sure, like, her, her best years, her, um, her last years were mm -hmm. full of quality of life. And for, for the most part, we, that was never an issue. Like, um, <laughs> like, every time she was hospitalized or in a senior citizen home, it was at, out of rehabilitation needs. Because, mm -hmm. like... It was like she'd have a, a heart bypass, and it was supposed to be like one, and then they'd be like, "Oh well, we did four. <laughs> so like, oh, so she had a quadruple heart bypass. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> or like stints would get put in, and those mm -hmm. were always really fun. By the way, I don't know if you still have grandparents. Yeah. Um, I hate you. By the way, okay. I like I like lose my mind when people are like, "Oh yeah, like my grandma's like 90. I'm like, "Yeah, my dad's dead." <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can respect that. But she would lose her mind on any sort of um, painkillers. Like she, okay, she talked to people that were dead for 30 years. Oh wow! And my dad, being the asshole that he was, he'd like point to her in front of her and be like, "If I ever get like that, just shoot me." <laughs> like, oh my god! Pop, she's right there. <laughs> like, and wow. they, I mean, it never turned out to be the case because uh, mm -hmm. he passed at 56. Yeah. But there so. was. In a way, he got what he wanted. It's sad, but you know. Yeah, there is no, there is no doubt that <laughs> yeah. you know that I would be responsible for his well-being. Uh huh. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and there's no good transition for this, but like, when, what did you, what, why did you join the army, and what was that process like? Deciding to do that. Um, I think, and it's, it's something that I've kind of advocated for 
for a long time. There's definitely a lack of awareness about the military, especially in the city that I grew up in, city town. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a town of 17,000, but it's very middle class, super white. Um, you know, growing up, I think I was the only, I was one of two Puerto Rican kids, but yeah. like the only um, tan kid. And I think maybe we had like three black students. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple Filipinos and Indians. Um, but that was really that was really it as far as racial diversity was concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just when the recruiters would come, like your junior and senior year of high school, the students that were doing well um, were never pointed towards the recruiters. It was never presented as an option, and it's always just been kind of drilled into your head. Like after high school, you go to college, mm-hmm. and one I find that to be irresponsible. Like not everybody can afford college. Not everybody's meant to go to college. I think there are wonderful alternatives to going to college between trade schools or taking a gap year or going to community college, especially if money is an issue. Um, and I think the military is one of those. And it was always just pitched to the kids who did, uh, they did the folk school, like they'd spend half the day in regular high school and half the day at like a tech school. Mm-hmm. Um, or like the kids that were potheads. And uh, that, that was a huge frustration because it's something I always wanted to do. And I think because college was so expensive for me that it provided, <laughs> I, I was able to say, look, you guys can't pay for this. You guys can't afford this. This is the only way I can do it without like incurring tens of thousands of dollars of debt. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I it was fiercely competitive to get a scholarship. I ended up only getting a one-year ROTC scholarship, which paid for my senior year. But mm-hmm. I left Fordham with 90 grand in school debt, wow. uh, which I've since paid off, thank God. <laughs> but Congratulations on that. Yeah. That's a big thing. Actually, yeah, but to think like my one year scholarship paid for my senior year, which was 45 grand. Wow, and that was I mean, I graduated in 2008, Mm -hmm. that's how much Fordham cost. Yeah, yeah, so it was a a monetary thing, and I mean, I definitely always would have done it. Like, I wish I had Mm -hmm. if I could have done it all over again, I would Mm -hmm. have done four years straight out of high school and then gone to college with a little bit more self-awareness with, um, you know, with the GI bill to pay for it. Mm -hmm. Definitely. That makes sense. Yeah. I think that's a smart move as well. And like, I don't really know much about the military because I went to like a very private school. I was homeschooled. So like Mm. we didn't have recruiters come by. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure your parents are thankful for that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We've been known for some aggressive tactics, but at least we're not knocking on doors. (laughs) Yeah. So what is, what, how does that start? Like, what is that experience like? I know that's kind of a bad question because it's not specific, but like you start off doing, I assume like boot camp and that sort of thing. And like, Um, I don't like all I know is like army movies and I know that those aren't always 100% accurate. No, yeah, they're definitely not. And there's so many different avenues. Like ROTC is a commissioning program. So it's where you would be like after you complete the program, you become an officer versus like going to basic training, which would be. Uh, becoming enlisted. That's okay. the enlisted versus officer side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I did go to basic training, uh, but for different reasons. I 
Um, I, because I started the program so late, they send cadets to like this six year, pro six week program with, with drill sergeants. Um, it's three weeks shy of what the regular basic training would be mm -hmm. if you enlisted, but it's to get you caught up on like, you know, how to march, um, customs and courtesies, how to shoot a weapon, how to do land navigation, um, doing squad tactical exercises, which is like where they give you like a scenario, like walk. 300 meters in this direction and then you're supposed to go talk to the shake and blah blah mm -hmm. blah and so stuff like that um but yeah so the, the the other commissioning sources would be like um you know west point any military academy and then there's a uh, direct commission which is very very rare and then there's the officer candidacy school mm -hmm. which is either six months if you're doing the active component version or two years if you're doing reserve version yeah. um but the transition into military life and i guess because when you do it through an rotc program it's it's a little shitty because yeah <laughs> You, you'd have these week weekend-long field training exercises, and it literally is out in the field. Like, if I wasn't sleeping outside, I was sleeping in, like, a giant, like, container, basically, on a concrete floor. Mm -hmm. um, and you're getting very little sleep, and you're outdoors and working your ass off, and then you have to go back to school on Monday, mm -hmm. catch up on all your homework. Ugh. Yeah, and then... Uh, it, where it really all begins is after graduation, once you go to your officer basic course, um, which is what your specialty is going to be in the military. So, like, as an officer, there's 16 different branches, like aviation, infantry, um, the combat arms branches, like artillery or armor and uh, stuff like that. And uh, there's even the medical service ones, the nurse corps. Uh, I went MI, military intelligence, so that was my basic. Oh, very cool. And that's um, intelligence gathering, right? Or am I incorrect? No. Um, so uh, the gathering part really happens like uh, on special teams and in, uh, and on the enlisted side. So you'll mm -hmm. you'd have uh, different types of collectors out there. So there's sure. different types of ints, as we call them, intelligence. So there's mm -hmm. human intelligence, which is exactly as it sounds. There's mm -hmm. signals intelligence, where we listen to things. Um, there's everything mazint and uh, graphic intelligence and i mean there's open source intelligence which is where a lot of shit comes from you know just reading the news and mm -hmm. um you know trying to ex we do so social media exploitation with like uh, uh youtube and facebook and twitter and sure. all, all of that stuff that would be, all be considered open source okay and what was your job there? Like, did you collect all of it and just, like, if this is pertinent to the case you've been given, it goes in this file, or what? Um, so it's based on the mission that your unit's assigned to. Sure. So, like, on this last deployment um, that I came back from in July, uh, we were a sustainment unit, which is basically, like, supply. You know, we move things, mm -hmm. um, and we, you know, we get parts to where they need to go and feed people and stuff like that. Um, so... For us, we would be analyzing any sort of intelligence that comes in that could disrupt our operations mm -hmm. and, of course, pose a threat to the safety of our soldiers. Okay. So, you know, if there's going to be... And it, it doesn't necessarily always need to be malicious, but, like, if there's going to be a protest or a rally held mm -hmm. at 3 p.m., like, you know, what routes would you take instead of that? Like, and are those routes safe? When was the last time there was an ID on that route? Mm -hmm. Wow. That's, that's a fair amount of pressure. 
to keep well, people safe like that. Yeah, I mean, on this last deployment, it, the U.S. doesn't move anything on the ground. It's all done by contractors. Okay. I, I, sh I So I should say that a little more clearly. Uniformed service members don't move anything on the ground. It's okay. done by contractors. Um, and that was, that's very much intentional. Like, the whole fight against ISIS in Iraq is uh, Iraqi-led and Iraqi-driven, and we are there in a support role. Okay. Um, of course, that rule doesn't necessarily apply to like the special forces side of things, mm -hmm. but as far as like the basic sustainers are concerned, we we were not the face of that effort. Understood. And when you joined up and you were deployed, was it what you expected, or was like, did you go in with a notion of what you think it was, and did it live up to that, or was it worse or better? Ah, uh, it's changed. I mean, <laughs> how many times have you been deployed? Three. Three. So I would assume it's different every time, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's been different every time, and sometimes you become a little, a bit more frustrated, um, apathetic, and mm -hmm. kind of annoyed, and <laughs> <laughs> you. And it it and for for a lot of people, it really does depend on who who's in the in the White House and uh -huh. um, the the policies of the administration and the. Mm -hmm. It really, I think whatever expectations I had quickly vanished the minute I landed in Iraq the first time in 2009. Yeah? Yeah. And what were those and like how was it different? What, like, I've never been to there. What's that yeah. like? Because um, there's definitely an idea that we all have. Yeah. In our mind. I, I mean, every everyone's service experience is going to be different. Um, like, uh, you know, from the guys... You, if you're in a combat arms unit, you probably haven't seen a female in four or five months wow. versus my life where I was like one of 20 females. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, you know, not to toot my own horn, but when you're a halfway decent looking female, <laughs> you know, yeah. it comes with a lot of extra attention. Like, so sure. there's, you know, there was a, there's stuff like that. Like, I guess... The only thing that I have found pretty consistent is that as a young female um, who's attractive is you have to work twice as hard yeah. to, for people, yeah, for you to have any credibility. Wow, that must be very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like, that does suck, but you do also seem like someone who is willing to work hard, and that's... That's a good quality. Yes, and on this last deployment, that was part of my frustration. I think uh, there were a lot of people in Iraq who were kind of annoyed that their lives were disrupted and weren't invested in helping to stabilize Iraq, and that used to piss me off to no end. Yeah. Because um, for me, it, you know, when Iraqis are being slaughtered on the daily, I, and I mean civilian Iraqis by ISIS, and then, you know, uniformed Iraqis are trying to go in and stem that. And you're, like, annoyed because we can't watch your team play football that Sunday. I really question your priorities and why you're wearing the uniform. I would imagine so. Like, there's a lot of self-pity that happens, too. It's like, look, buddy, nobody asked you to join. We're in all-volunteer service. No yeah. one held a gun to your head and say, yeah. hey, you have to do this. Yeah. So, I... Yeah. 
So if you yeah. ask me like what my expectations were and what have has <laughs> since happened, that happened on this last deployment. I was like, oh, okay, cool. So you've gone from empathizing with Harry Potter to Hermione. <laughs> yeah. You know, can, people are dying. Can we not argue about stuff that does not matter? Oh, it's yeah. it, it's really insane. It's like, and I, I, and that's kind of the problem. Like you know, you go in with so many people, and some people end up being very gainfully employed, and others have less to do. But it's, it always strikes me as, like, hilarious. Like, if I didn't have enough work to keep myself busy, mm-hmm. you wouldn't fucking know. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I would read the news. I would write a fucking novel. Yep. I would do anything I could to make sure I looked busy <laughs> if I wasn't actually busy. Yeah. I like that kind of proactive effort. And... To me, it's all about, like, peace of mind. Like, why wouldn't Mm -hmm. you do that for your own sanity? Like, you're here regardless. You have nine months here, buddy. Like, you need to learn how to keep yourself occupied. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Do you find, like, has being in the military, like, made you more organized in your, like, civilian life as well? Like, it's like, (laughs) no? Okay. (laughs) No, no, I I would say the only thing I do do is, and and that was before... Okay. Uh, I always make my bed. I make my bed every morning. It's, okay. It's how I start my day. It's like the it just helps get the pro- productivity fo- flowing. Okay. Like yeah. You know, to, and then it also reduces the temptation to get back in your bed and like just scroll through Facebook or read news article after news, which is usually what tends to happen. All right. And yeah. so my husband's like, "What'd you do today?" And I kind of go, "Nothing." But then I'm like, "Oh, but I spent like." an hour and a half reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. I feel like there's this um, misnotion of, like, once you're in the military, your whole personality changes, and you're, like, now, like, this rigid-oriented, like, very focused-driven person. And I feel like... I probably am, and I don't know it. <laughs> like, nobody's brought it to my attention. Yeah. Um, I will say that. But like, yeah, like, there, I, there are things that I'm kind of inflexible about. There... Sure. Uh... I think too, I'm defensive about people who don't know about the military who criticize it. Yeah. Uh, and mostly because like it'll come from somebody who like who didn't even vote in the last election. Yes. <laughs> I want to be like, look, motherfucker, mm-hmm. like you didn't even exercise the one guarantee that you have as an American is that you're allowed to vote. Do you know how lucky you are? Yeah. Like the places that I've been and the things that I've read, like that you just get to vote. Like mm-hmm. you're so lucky, and that you can voice your shitty opinion on Twitter and Facebook without going to jail. Yeah. Like that doesn't happen all over the world. And so, like, sometimes I, I do get upset about that. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's not to say that I think we spend recklessly and that the defense budget needs to be reined in and that it's mm-hmm. crippling our economy for sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm t- and, and that's another, like, point of, of frustration for me. It's like you can criticize the Department of Defense and still mm-hmm. be pro-troops. Oh, Those for sure. two are not, you know, linked together at all. You mm-hmm. can say, like, we need to lower the defense budget. It's Because at the end of the day, the reality is that money's not going to me or to my family or to my salary or to mm-hmm. my pension. It's like going to bullshit, like R&D and, like, new uniforms or a new Humvee. And it's like, mm-hmm. why? Yeah. Like, Absolutely. And, like, I can also, like, as someone who's kind of been off and on with views about the military, and a lot of it comes from, like, just 
blanket being, like you're saying, kind of being misinformed because, like, specifically in New York, you're in this, like, weird liberal bubble of, like, everyone is like, oh, well, blah, blah, blah. but I did, like, I recently, and I'm, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, um, I went, I work at a catering company and we did a gig for the Marines' um, birthday. Mm-hmm. And I saw that, and I was, like, very moved by it, and I wanted to learn more, and that's why I invited you on the, the show. But also, it just made it very clear that regardless of how you feel about the budget or where they are in the world, like, to dedicate yourself, any like, any part of your life to a country is a beautiful thing to do, and a very... Like, you, you have to have gumption to do that, and that should be respected, I feel like. Yes, I... I... Having been in for 11 years now, I want to wholeheartedly agree with you. Mm -hmm. But there, I think with most government service, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of people who just see it as a cushy job, one that would be very hard to be fired from and will secure them a pension. And Mm -hmm. those people I can't stand, of course. Like, they drive me out of my mind. Sure. But for the... I, I will say that if you didn't start out that way with that altruistic sense to serve your nation, serve your country, come what may... Mm -hmm. um, that you're that would stuff for the most part you still retain a lot of that after service and i think most people leave service only because of the inefficiencies and the frustrations that they have with how things are managed hmm. like like um there are tons of articles out there that talk about the brain drain in the military how we can't keep um all of our academy graduates in the military after their five years of service. Like, so you you go to West Point, and it's like, it's like a $400,000 education you're getting at the expense of American taxpayers, mm-hmm. and the Army asks you to spend five years in, and like something crazy, like 65 to 70% of them leave once their obligation's done. They're like, mm. nope, I'm good, I'm done. Wow. And you would think if you're doing things right, they would stay on yeah Yeah, (laughs) they would stay in but there are a lot of reasons for leaving i mean Mm -hmm. it's super patriarchal um you're based kind of on your age and your rank instead of what you've brought to the table Mm -hmm. um which after studying a little bit of like the revolutionary war is super frustrating i'm like wait a minute yeah (laughs) alexander (laughs) hamilton was commanding yeah (laughs) wait a minute italians he was nine yeah Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, what the hell? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, and then, like, specifically also, like, oh, in also in, like, the Civil War as well. Like, it was boys and it was anybody. It was anybody that was willing to help and yeah. did a good job. But, and, like, like, you could get promoted so quickly if mm-hmm. you were a capable person. And yeah. you, you don't have those options in the current structure. And a lot of people leave because they're like, look, I can make a better living i can have a better quality of life um i don't mm-hmm. you know i don't have to answer to five thousand people i can just answer to like the three guys above me in line mm-hmm. um and a lot of people leave yeah. <laughs> do you think that's one of the reasons why you pick stand-up comedy because it's so like a singular person and it's all like you write your own material and it's all very individualistic no 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 um in fact it, it's getting to a point in my career where my service and comedy are coming into odds with each other. Okay. Um, just because I'd love to be able to talk about a lot of the political stuff that's happening right now, but I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, so while I can certainly form opinions mm-hmm. and I can disagree with the current administration, I have to very much toe the line about what's appropriate and inappropriate, especially as a as an officer. That makes sense because you don't 
Yeah. You, yeah. We so for all the civil liberties we fight for like <laughs> everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> we're not always afforded those. Yeah. Boy, that must be rough. Yeah. Kind of just like, well, I can't talk about it. Yeah. Oh boy. Uh But, you know, at least, you know, you did pick uh artistic venue that isn't at all patriarchal and demeaning to <laughs> at least you went with something that's very accepting yeah, and inclusive yeah it's so inclusive and i don't have to worry about sexual assault there either uh-huh fantastic oh boy. Uh, you said there either is there like oh there's rampant sexual assault in the military okay it's, it happens all the time there mm. i mean just in the time that i on this last deployment there were like three incidents um and one was quite violent. Like she was oh. knocked over the head with a frozen water bottle, uh, wow. in in the showers in the latrine. Um, <laughs> and then there were some that were almost comical. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no sexual assault is funny, but this type of like harassment, if you will, mm-hmm. um, some pervert. <laughs> and for all I know, it could have been a woman. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but for. <laughs> I think I'm just going to go with it was a man mm-hmm. had been stealing female underwear out of the laundry rooms. <laughs> That's so silly. Like, so the laundry rooms are like these giant containers. Like yeah. if you've seen them on construction sites, it's like where the office is on a construction site. Oh, yeah, sure. It's yeah. literally a container. Um, so we use those containers for everything. We live in them. We put showers and uh, toilets in them. And then we put our washers and dryers. And so I never leave my stuff unattended because I just don't feel like dealing with, like, somebody stole my shit. Mm -hmm. Um, But some people are more comfortable and trusting. And this guy had been, I mean, and it didn't matter, like, if you were big or small or, like, granny panties or thongs or whatever it was. But I guess he was either nervous or something or getting ready to leave the theater. Um, And he... (laughs) He returned all of the underwear at <laughs> the in like the laundry facility. Like he just left it on top of washing machines, uh-huh. and it like spread across three different washing <laughs> machines. And it was just underwear, like tons. Oh, I mean, boy. girls were going in there like, "That's mine! That's so mine. Like, fuck I, wild." I was trying to figure out what happened to those. It's like it was insane. That is so weird. It's super weird. <sighs> And you're kind of like, at what point did you steal those? And they yeah, were like, they had all been laundered. Like, he, he eventually yeah. at some point oh, cleaned them. That's so odd. And it's also like, what, what's his story? Yeah, it's yeah. like, it is like, it's like, as far as like, it's not I mean, great, but it's had... so inoffensive. Like, it's out of all the things you could do, it's just like taking something that's not yours and then giving it back. But it's just, it is weird. You're talking like a green army duffel bag size <laughs> amount of underwear. <laughs> like, there was a lot of panties in there. That is Buck wild. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I just can't. What What makes someone do that, though? Like, I want to talk to him now. Of, like, <laughs> what, what made you think that not only, like, I'm sure he never thought this is okay, but I'm sure he got, like, nervous and sweaty. Like, this is something I need. Yeah. And that's so weird. Like, and also what system makes that sort of thing happen? That's weird. That's it's crazy. So that was that had happened in Kuwait. Um, and in Kuwait, the environment there is some civilians live off post. Like, they live in downtown Kuwait City. Mm-hmm. So they come back and forth. Um, and then there are some folks that, you know, it, it could have easily been a military member as well. And so when we leave... When we finally leave, whether, um, you know, 
when you're a, a uniformed person there, you go through basically TSA on crack. Yeah. I mean, they make you dump every single article of your duffel, of your luggage, and go through it um, piece by piece to make sure you're not taking back any sort of contraband or weapon mm-hmm. or um, war souvenir, whatever the case is. So, to me, in my mind, mm-hmm. like, this guy was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> I will get caught. I'm leaving, and I can't take these <laughs> with me. <laughs> like, somebody's going to notice. Oh, wow. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> sorry, so, it's so childish, too. Like, it's like, that's something a 12-year-old boy would do. I just felt like, I feel like, I'm like, I, I thought I saw this on, like, an episode of Orange is the New Black. Couldn't yep. you just buy some? Yeah, I mean, just... like, clearly this is a cheaper route, but. Like, oh, boy. Uh, so, do you, so, you're in, currently in service as well so that you're still in and so you mm-hmm. can't talk about certain things do you think once you do are you when if when if you do quit are you just going to write a one-woman show about your time in the military and just bust so many balls or yeah i mean i would love to get to that mm-hmm. point um uh because I, and i certainly talk about the military in my comedy um, mm-hmm. the funnier stuff and yeah. you've heard it but i I also am hesitant to kind of, I don't believe in, um, like, I call it faux patriotism. Like, I don't, I try not to do anything where it would be considered, like, profiting from my service. Like, I get very uncomfortable when people are like, oh, thank you for your service. I'm like, oh, thank you for paying your taxes. (laughs) (laughs) An exchange of money has happened for a service. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, like, whatever I would do, like, it would only have it would only happen if it was like so perfect sure yeah Yeah. and do you feel do you feel different from when you like i mean obviously because it's been you said 11 years like obviously you're going to change as a person but do you Mm -hmm. think how how do you think you've changed and is it for the better going through this and in regards to how it relates to the podcast do you think your your mental health has changed at all do you think it's good or bad yeah uh and I, I think that kind of goes back to the question, like, do you, like, when you were asking me earlier, like, do you think it makes you, like, a, like, people have that mm-hmm. impression of you're being more disciplined and a better worker and all that stuff. Um, I will say that my menten- my mental resiliency is probably a lot higher than the average American. Um, and this last deployment especially was super difficult for me. Uh, I was sent to Iraq on Veterans Day, November 11th. So right before the holidays, I was sent to go support a unit that had lost like my job, um, the person that did my job. So it was just supposed to be a backfill. And then like the week before Christmas, I found out that the unit coming in to replace that unit also didn't have my job filled. So I was gonna have to stay in Iraq like, the full seven months left I had remaining on my tour it's like it just went from like still don't know anybody and I still don't know anybody and it and I of course I was great with my soldiers and I loved my soldiers but it would be irresponsible of me as a leader to kind of dump my problems on them and this was my first deployment married um so that was a huge factor like uh you I still felt a responsibility to try and like be a good wife and be present and be available for phone calls or Skype sessions and um, stuff like that. And you kind of 
have to toe the line between how much you let your civilian life distract you from the mission uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, dealing with the guilt of that. And then um, I, I'm Catholic and I'm super observant and there were no oh, Catholic wow. masses in Iraq. Um, so for like two months, I had no outlet um, mm-hmm. on that side. So that those that whole like two month period um, when I f- had first gotten to Iraq until we finally like we got an Australian priest in mm-hmm. with the new contingent. Um, but even the Australian priest was kind of funny because he was from Poland. Okay. So he had been an infantry officer in the Polish army and then moved to Australia to join their army as a chaplain. So he became a Catholic priest. Um, mm-hmm. So it was really, it was great because when he would do like the body and blood of Christ, he would say blood, <laughs> like Count Dracula. <laughs> 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 and I would have to like not laugh. <laughs> That's wonderful. It was it was it was pretty awesome. But no, like uh, that was a really like, I mean, I would joke like with my family about like suck starting my M four. Yeah. Uh, which, but it really it was it was super hard. Yeah. Um, just to be away from my family from the holidays and then to be in this area where I was kind of very isolated because the unit that I had trained with and. Um, the friends that I had developed in that unit were down in Kuwait and I was in Iraq by myself. Do you have someone on hand like to talk through things? Like do they have a like a psychiatrist or anything there? We do. We have um, so we have the chaplain Mm -hmm. Um, if your unit doesn't actually have or if there isn't like a mental health counselor Mm -hmm. on your base um, you can always go talk to a chaplain Uh, and Mm -hmm. but they're you know, for all their good intentions, they're they're pretty limited in their capacity, and yeah. um, I wasn't. I wasn't. I don't know that I ever felt um, like I needed to talk to someone that was a mental health counselor. Sure, it was. It was just more like I needed some sort of grounding connection to my environment and I wasn't getting that. That makes sense. It was seems like all the stimuli was external, not like internal. In yeah. Like you were in a bad situation so you felt bad. Yeah, like all you had was work. Yeah, that seems very isolating and that would be very difficult. Specifically with just the first time going away when you were married. That seems... Yeah. I. How's that? I missed my first anniversary um but we'll get to make up for it this year uh yeah and it it was kind of a shitty first year of marriage because the year leading up to a deployment is always a very intense training year like three weeks Mm -hmm. after we got married i was in fort carson colorado for three weeks and then about once a week for every month after that i was away from home oh wow so like uh i was for my first two years of marriage i was away more than i was home that's rough. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. yeah. But we're good. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. You, I'm glad you guys. <laughs> he played a lot of golf. <laughs> <laughs> that's, okay. that's good. Yeah. Just like how. Like, does, does he worry a lot or is he like, is he OK? Like, how do you guys balance that? Or is it just like a time thing or like, because like, I know if I if, if my wife was in the middle, I'd be constantly anxious about that person. Yeah. Um. 
I or think my husband's very practical. Okay. Like, I'm sure there were moments where he was concerned, mm-hmm. but I think at the end of the day, he's just, like, a very mm-hmm. even-keeled person, yeah. which is probably good considering our, like, crazy life, like, yeah, yeah. between, like, the, the, the military and being in comedy. It's, like, I think I'm the extreme for both of us. Understood. That makes sense. That's probably a good match, too, because you need someone, like you were saying, that grounds you. Yeah. With whatever life you have. Um, do you find yourself being very anxious because you never know when the call's gonna come, or is like, or how does that work? Like when you're called up to be deployed, or that they need you somewhere. Like, what's that process like? Uh, I'm not, I'm not typically anxious about stuff like that. Like mm-hmm. um, any sort of personal safety issues, I don't really care. <laughs> like, yeah. oh fucking whatever. Yeah. Like I, I very much take the approach of it's in God's hands. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's God's will. That's, that's a good <laughs> way to do it, yeah. Like, I don't know why you chose that bus on that day, but fine, God. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to question the almighty one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, like, from that, from that perspective, I'm not really an anxious person. I get, uh, I get more anxiety at home about, um, like, the things that are beyond my control. Sure. Yeah, Like, I don't... Like, I don't like making, um, like, having a, pl- like, I don't like not having a plan. Like, I'm constantly, mm-hmm. like, on my husband to, like, <laughs> like, so, like, I'm pregnant. I'm, like, uh, mm-hmm. I'm, like, we need to get the nursery ready. He's, like, you're four months. <laughs> <laughs> He's, we've got time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, like, no. I'm, like, that's what you say now. But then, like, it's you gonna know. going to sneak up on you. Yeah. yeah. You'll be, like, it's, like, the holidays. And then mm-hmm. this happens. And it's, like, all right. And then I'll be enormous. And I won't be able to do anything. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, like, it's stuff like that gives me more anxiety, like, mm-hmm. not planning for the future. Mm-hmm. And what I mean, like, I don't mean, like, what I meant wasn't, like, personal harm stuff. I mean, like, just having to leave your life. N- well, or, right now, yeah. I'll <laughs> like. I, and this is, this wasn't true previously, um, mm-hmm. but because of the situation with North Korea, I'm always kind of like, well after a deployment when you're in the reserves or national guard um you get four years of what's called dwell time so you you get four years of this kind of it's not to say uninterrupted but you're non-deployable for those four years so you can like be normal and have a family life and yeah you know keep your job (laughs) um so things like that and under you know everything happening with North Korea, I do feel like, well, I could go to shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they could be like, mm, different circumstances now. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden. Yeah. Know. Okay. Noted. Um, also, like, I assume, based off of your, like, wanting a plan, are you going to, like, know the, the gender of the, the kid immediately? Like, or Yeah, so yeah. the doctor already has the results. They can oh. find out now. Um, at 12 weeks, they do blood mm-hmm. work. So basically, like... Wow. If there's that extra chromosome that I'm not supposed to have, then yeah. it's a boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, solid. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, right on. But so I'll get the results and they'll put it in like a little envelope on Friday. And then actually on Sunday, oh. we're doing the gender reveal. Oh, that's very fun. Yeah. Are yeah. You, I assume you're excited to be a mother. I I am excited and nervous. Uh-huh. I'm like, ooh, fuck. Like, <laughs> like, I can go to jail if I fuck this up. <laughs> Yeah. True. And I'm, also I'm also very much aware of like the psychological impact your parents have on you because like yeah. my parents weren't always the best. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, my mother especially like she struggled with or has struggled with alcoholism her whole life, mm-hmm. and I'm always like, oh god, I don't want to like 
oh, like I feel mm-hmm. like you either have to save for college or save for therapy. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like I tried so hard. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. <laughs> and then it's like, you know, even like trying too hard is a problem. Like, oh, mm-hmm. you're a helicopter parent or stuff like that. Yeah. Um, well, I would say that's also like something you can't really control how you're at actions impact someone else and and then that's that's the other thing like you can do everything as right as possible you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like you can provide that loving naturing environment not coddle too much and all that bullshit and then (laughs) i mean all those important parenting things um and your your kid will still find a way to be john mulaney yeah yeah (laughs) or that that is honestly probably my biggest fear is like that your kids John Mulaney. Well, you so you grew up mm-hmm. homeschooled. What yeah. what was your parents' inclination for doing that? Was it to kind of like shelter you from like the bullshit of public schooling or It was it was a mix of things. Um one, uh, deep-seated mistrust of the US government. They're from South Dakota, so everyone's like hyper individualistic there. And then also like Is that where you grew up? Um I grew up in South Dakota and Minnesota. So Okay. Yeah, so very Midwestern and gosh and golly and all that. Um, but it was that. And then my mom's a teacher by trade. So she's just like, I'll teach the kids. It's fine. You know, that, you know, it, it's funny how often I hear like people who earn their living teaching other kids and mm-hmm. decide they don't want to put their kids into that system. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, I'm like, that's always so shocking to me. I mean, it makes sense from mm-hmm. the perspective that this is certainly something I could do myself, mm-hmm. but that they would find the benefits of you being home and like less socialized better than well yeah and it's also like they're they're very devout christians and so they kind of wanted to control over what we were taught in regards to like um evolutionism and mm-hmm. and and sex ed and that sort of thing and then also like they both gone through high school like public high schools and they both knew that it's you don't get enough attention to learn as quickly as you can and like things like the you know and they got it's gotten worse with like the no child left behind act and that sort of thing and like and that's i I don't think as effect like in effect as it was i haven't kept up with that but like we would start school sometimes at like nine and we'd be done by noon because Mm -hmm. we just had learned everything for that day because you can just sit down and work and have to wrangle kids because that's really the job of a teacher is to make sure no one in that classroom dies really and the teaching is part of it and it's a really difficult system that they're in because it is there are certain standards that you have to meet but then also you have 32 40 kids in a classroom yeah but I completely agree with that, that you know, kids learn at different paces. So to mm-hmm. be in a, a classroom with 25 other kids, like, you know, I remember being bored. I'm like, yeah. oh, like fuck this shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, damn it. Like, can you, like, when, when we would have to read aloud in uh-huh. class, I'd always be that asshole that, like, knew how to pronounce that word. I'm like, mm-hmm. how do you not know this yet? Like, God, <laughs> it's third grade. Get it together. Jesus. <laughs> like, yeah. And what was really beautiful about being homeschooled is, like, they they have three kids, and mm-hmm. they all learn differently. We all, like, and all our focuses are different. Well, I guess we all kind of went into the humanities mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But, like, and my mom is an English professor, so we had an emphasis in, like, literature, the, literatures yeah. and the humanities, so it's no wonder that we're all artistic. But it's also, like, we could, if... If we, if my mom knew that the math thing that we were doing that week was difficult, she could 
like no like number one make assignments for the other things that were easier so we had more time and then also like since math was more difficult we could spend two hours on a concept and then the rest of the time flew by because it's you know just reading or whatever it was and she really could focus on like the problem areas and then also to conversely like when we did like Oh, um, like uh, negative numbers. Mm -hmm. I understood that concept immediately, so we spent literally fifteen minutes on it, and then we just moved on with the rest of the le like the. We didn't like move on to the next lesson in the book. We just moved on to the next thing we had. So it was just really great to be able to be tutored essentially, a hundred percent. And that's well, I mean, like back in the day, that was the style. Like if you were wealthy enough, your parents mm -hmm. hired a governess, and she taught you French and Latin and. The things that you would need to know to function in life, like teach you fucking geology and rocks, and yeah. like, like I so, I mean, those I'm sure those are interesting for the kid that's gonna grow up and say, like, you know, I wanna, I wanna be a geologist. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like that's that's great for that one kid. Yeah. They're, they're like the forty nine other ones. Yeah, no, it's just agony. It's just. And then I went to public high school once I like was like 15, and it, it was so different. And I had what I would now call panic attacks. Yeah. Like the first few weeks, just because there were so many people going from three people to 300 is. But, that happens um, post deployment. I would imagine. No, but go ahead. I'll, I'll explain. Okay, I'll explain. Good. Um, but yeah, and just like, just knowing that. Also knowing, being in that classroom, knowing that I understood the concept and that I was ready to move on to the next thing. It's but frustrating. Yeah, we have another 45 minutes of this class, and now I'm done. And now I'm just sitting here, and I can't, like, do other homework because they don't let you do that. I'm like, this this, this system is buck wild. But what the... How do you mean, like, post-deployment, that thing oh, that you said? Oh, so, um... When you come back... So when you're deployed, you're... <laughs> You're living in, like, this very insular environment sure. of, like, you eat in the same place three times a day, you shower in the same, like, building every day, you, you, you literally, you go to your office, you go to the gym, you go to the shower, you go to the cafeteria, that's, like, it. We don't call it cafeterias, we call them dining facilities, and for short, we call them defects. But, <laughs> <laughs> like, and maybe you'll go down to the PX, which is basically, like, Walgreens, Walmart, um, depending mm -hmm. on how large your base is. And that's that's all of your variety for wow. the day. Um, so my first tour when I was in Iraq, I was an aide to camp. So I left um, the post all the time to go to downtown Baghdad to meet with different ministries and stuff. Uh, aide to camp is like a glorified sleeve for in a general. <laughs> okay. I mean, I had a wonderful general, so I felt less sleeve like. But some people had a very hard ass general, and I was uh -huh. like, like you felt for them. You mm -hmm. were always like, oh. She's so and so's general. <laughs> like, like, let's get her lunch for her. Uh, well, that's kind of you. That's good. Yeah, no, my general was fantastic. I I love him. I still talk to him. I invited him to my wedding and all that stuff. Oh, um, good. He's since retired, but I, and I went to his retirement ceremony in D.C. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're, you know, when you do go to places like the PX and you're mm -hmm. going for like deodorant, there's mm -hmm. three. There aren't like forty-seven varieties. Like you get three options, and uh -huh. you pick your favorite, <laughs> uh -huh. and then you walk out. Like that's it. So I very distinctly remember coming home and one, like kind of needing to learn how to drive again. It's <laughs> like oh shit, because I drove in Iraq, but I I drove on post, and 
dude, there's there's a lot of memories or like there's a lot of awareness that has to happen while you're driving that mm-hmm. you just kind of that sixth sense fell apart. Mm-hmm. And then I went to the supermarket and I, I think it was probably for deodorant or something simple. Mm-hmm. And I just looked at the wall and I was like, wow. Yeah. And I walked out. <laughs> I didn't get anything. I couldn't buy anything. I mean, like, completely <laughs> fell apart. I was like, I need to go lay in my bed right now. Because oh, wow. there were so many people. So it, and, and specifically living here of all places. Yeah. So my second deployment, which was to Kosovo, I had taken a 96-hour pass to Paris. And I remember getting to Paris and going... Asians, <laughs> Asians, and idiots. Like it, I was working for NATO at the time, and uh-huh. NATO members are vastly like pr- they're primarily European. Uh-huh. I mean, I think there were like three black guys on our camp. Like yeah. one guy was my best friend. He went to Paris with me. One mm-hmm. one guy was fr- in the French army. Like there, there were no real like minorities. Uh-huh. Um, so. I was just like, oh my god, yeah, you guys exist. <laughs> it was bizarre. I remember you. There was one Thai restaurant on post run by, like, Thais, and, mm-hmm. but it was, like, the same three girls. Like, yeah. It's like, <laughs> it was, like, a different type of Asian. Like, it was just them. Like, yeah, you, yeah. It was, yeah, there's, so there's stuff like that that mm-hmm. takes a lot of getting used to yeah. again. Like psychological ballroom syndrome, and all of a sudden everything's so vast. Yeah. Wow. I would uh, imagine. There are some people who can't, who don't. Yeah, they come back and they can't mm-hmm. do crowds or you know, they mm-hmm. can't do 4th of July celebrations, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. yeah. How do you, like, I know, I think we always need more and more progress when it comes to that sort of thing and dealing with... Reintegrating? Yeah, reintegrating. And, like, specifically with if people who are in active combat, post-traumatic stress and all that. And, like, but have you had any experience with that? Not necessarily with you, but just in your life, like people um, you've known. I I was very much aware of my homecoming this time around because mm-hmm. that deployment was so difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what was most helpful for me is that I have such a good support network. Um, I have mm-hmm. great friends. You, know, these are friends that I've had since I was eleven years old. In one case, since I was five years old. Wow. Um, and my family and like it was. It was almost like nothing had changed, like time hadn't passed, and like I was immediately welcomed back into the fold, and like, you know, group text messages, and um, you know, even with comedy. uh, Yeah. It's like, I I actually had no desire to jump back into comedy right away, only because I didn't want to deal with the bullshit of like, trying to (laughs) hustle for stage time, and dealing with weird producers and like oh mm-hmm. like we'll book you for this show but can you like bring four people like no i'm not fucking bringing anybody <laughs> like, get out of here like i'm past that point i uh, understand completely yeah so it was just like i didn't i didn't want to go back to that right away and my husband mm-hmm. had actually been the one who was like um you need to go do like a mic or something mm-hmm. and i was like all right fine <laughs> okay <laughs> Uh, he was actually way more, and I'm gl- I'm very glad that he was, because mm-hmm. uh, even that community was very welcoming. Good. Um, and it's sad in that I think a lot of the people who struggle when they come back to reintegrate and stuff are kind of missing that connection to the n- their their home. Yeah. Um, you know, you should feel most comfortable here, uh, but mm-hmm. they prefer the lifestyle deployed because it's it's kind of simple. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like, there are a lot of people who get almost addicted to deployments. Like, you'll meet somebody that's been deployed, like, seven times. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily because they had to go every time, but Mm -hmm. it's just such a different way of life. Like, you know exactly what the expectations are of you. Somebody's taking care of everything for you. Like, if you don't want to do your laundry yourself, you can drop it off at the laundry facility and somebody will do it for you. You know, three meals are available for you every day. and. Mm -hmm all that stuff there's a gym and yeah you know all you basically have to do is pay for wi-fi wow and they just love like you're not worried about gas or taxes or yeah or paying car insurance or well you've convinced me i'm gonna join up right away (laughs) (laughs) yeah wow that's that's buck wild no like Makes sense too, because like people want consistency and respect, and if you get both of those things, and there and there was a little bit of like back, I would say earlier on, there was definitely like a feeling of like, oh yeah, like I feel like I'm contributing, and I I understand what my what I do impacts like the bigger scene. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm sure that was a factor too, and some people just like it, like they just they don't mind Groundhog Day. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. I will say as well, like when I saw you this last time, like when we, like we, we reconnected, because I'd seen you at the Lantern Mic before, and I was like, where did she go? Because she was funny and good, and I liked her <laughs> stuff, and then like, you disappeared, and then I was like, oh, this makes sense. And so I'm glad though that when you did come back to comedy, you did feel welcome and not weird, yeah. because I know that like that community can be weird enough for just like being in it and thinking you're welcome and all of a sudden you're not and like so I'm glad that your experience was positive coming back yeah it, it certainly has been um and it, it's continued to be mm-hmm. um good yeah well we're at about an hour so oh okay I want to thank you for doing this show yeah and then also did you have like a website or where people can find you or anything um I'm on Facebook as L.A. Palladino L.A. Paladino. Okay. Um, and that's about it. Okay. <laughs> I have an Instagram and a Twitter, and I never check them, and I don't know how to use half of them, so. Okay. Well. Uh, I feel bad, though. Like, I feel like we didn't even, like, touch on, like, your topic. Or did we? I, don't I know. think we did a little bit. If you have more to say, though, I will. No. I mean, it's up to you. Like, you can chop this up however you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, like, well, do you have, like, more to say about, like, did did it like negatively affect you coming back or like no 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 no, no, no. because like because you know there's that there is that stereotype that everyone has ptsd and everything and like everything's american sniper and nothing is no one transitions well it's just not my nature like i'm a very much like you seem very level-headed no like i'm uh i'm gonna ignore this and maybe (laughs) maybe one day it'll go away (laughs) okay so noted yeah. All right. So it's more like a internal, like, ticking away rather than, like, okay, yeah, that Like, I, like for example, my father, like, yeah. some people are always kind of taken aback at how casually I talk about the fact that he's passed. And mm-hmm. I'm like, so, like, I, when I went back to my civilian job, they mm-hmm. were like, how are you? How's David? Like, they were asking all of those mm-hmm. questions. And I was like, and my dad's still dead. And they're like, you're an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There's something just pragmatic about it. Like, this is life. I I mean for me it's it's both like a, I think it's definitely a like a security mechanism that mm-hmm. I've built up like I, if I don't think about it then it just doesn't exist okay. um, for better or worse mm-hmm. uh, but I I with regard to my dad I've taken the approach that like 
I feel so lucky and blessed to have had such an amazing father and mm-hmm. we had such a good relationship and we're close and I never had like those moments of like oh like I wish I had done this or x y and z like no like I was always with my dad yeah um so and thank god because my mom was useless yeah <laughs> like, like if it weren't for him my life would have been so shitty uh-huh. <laughs> like like it was it was unpleasant but I I take the approach that I'm lucky that I had him as opposed to not. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though I didn't get as much time with him as everybody else, I don't feel like I had ever wasted any of that time. Well, that's good. That's a good way of going about it, I yeah. think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I think I think that's good, being grateful for what you have as opposed to wanting more. Like, that's... Yeah. Oh, don't get me wrong. I certainly yeah. had, like, pity moments after oh, he died course. where I was like... Ah, ah. Well, of like, course, that's part of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, he's not going to get to walk me down the aisle. I mean, the reality was he wouldn't have been able to walk anyway. No. <laughs> <laughs> that would be terrible He's not going to be able to wheel me down the aisle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would have been pushing him. Like, let's go, Pop. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's us. <laughs> that's it. We'll end there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's where we're at. Oh, okay. boy. I now call to order this meeting of the Amateur Detectives Club. We've got a mystery on our hands, gang. It's What's the Best Mystery Review Podcast. <gasps> what are the clues? Well, they have to feature, like, very good detectives like Hercule Poirot. Oh, I love him. Maybe be about books that everybody loves and sometimes TV shows or movies. Hmm. And it has to have some good hosts. Like, probably a three seems like a good number. Uh, just a lightful, charming charming hosts you know what guys what i think i have the solution mm-hmm. it's the amateur detectives club a new mystery podcast with me melissa maley and miles newberth and me tristan miller when does it come out oh it comes out every um third monday of the month wonderful this meeting is adjourned Jacques! gaffle sound <laughs>